0: You can go ahead and be seated. If you know Stephen Laurie, send them a card. Right, get on their get on their social media. Shoot them a text. Just tell them how much you love them how much you appreciate them. And uh, again, they're not going anywhere. You're going to see them around. And, uh, but we just, again, we just want to give them that space to be able to rest and recover from the weight of eldership and the weight that they've carried. Hey, I, we just want to remind you too, Discover City Life is going to be coming up soon. I believe it's not on the screen. It's here in my notes. Let me... March 27th, March 27th, we're going to do Discover City Life it's, it's for people that are new to the church who are asking the question, is this the church that God's calling me to? Is this the place that I'm supposed to call home? And so if that's you, then we would love for you to join us. It'll be like a small group experience on Saturday night, and it'll be during the sermon portion of the service. So nursery is here for you. If you've got kids, you'll be able to come. And then if you're not able to make that or if you want to double down in mid-April, Vanessa and I are going to be leading a virtual small group for about four weeks or so uh, that'll be covering that same content. So again, if you're new to the church, if you're watching from online, you want to jump in virtually, if you can't be here in person, that's another reason why we're going to do the virtual small group. We want you to be able to join us as well. Again, that'll be coming in mid-April. So we've got a new series that we launched last week. We're loving it. We're so excited about this series entitled Docs. I'm going to explain what that word means in just a minute. But every week we're going to be Unpacking one of the seven, what we believe, seven core Christian beliefs or seven core Christian doctrines. We did God is one last week. We're going to be doing the Bible is true this week. The cross is enough. Mankind is helpless. Jesus is life. Eternity is real. And then the church is central. They might not be in that order. We'll see how the Holy Spirit leads as we're putting this series together. But, but each week, we're going to just spend a little bit of time. I'll talk a little bit tonight, just like as we did last week. We talked a little bit of last week teaching about the Trinity. But the series is not intended to walk you through the fundamentals, or it's not an apologetic on these seven. If you're interested in that, there's tons of resources. And most of you, I think, already embrace these seven beliefs. The series is about how is this belief instructing the way that you live. If you believe this truth, fill in the blank, we're going to do the Bible is true tonight. How is that changing the way that you live? How is it changing the way that you're a father or a husband or a mother or a neighbor or a coworker? We believe that these truths are supposed to be instructive and transformative in our lives. If we just talk about them as concepts then we have reduced Christianity to religious intellectualism and that's not what we're about here at City Life. Again I want to say thank you again. I said last week to Amy Kimball doing some incredible research for me on this Greek word doxa and then also for Shannon and David and Justin just being a part of some brainstorming so thank you for that. So let me give you this definition. We're just going to reintroduce this every week so we know new people are tuning in every week, showing up every week. Doxa is the Greek word that you find in the New Testament for glory. It means splendor, grandeur, power, kingdom, praise. It means honor. It's it's used to talk about the revealed presence of God In, in, in the New Testament where someone feels like they're in God's presence, it'll use the word doxa. It's often used to refer to God himself. Now the root of doxa means to think or to suppose, or believe, or consider, or imagine. So you can see why this is a great word for this series, because we're talking about how our lives are supposed to point people to the glory of God, but it's also connected to this idea of thinking and believing. So each week, we're asking you to ask yourself this question. I'm going to insert the Bible is true, but how does my belief that the Bible is true, but it's a fill in the blank because every week we want you to ask yourself a different question. Last week was how does my belief that God is one? This week, how does my belief that the Bible is true inspire me to pursue a life that reveals God's glory to the world around me? All of us have... A manifold of missions in this life. I have a mission as a father and as a husband, a mission as a pastor, I have a mission as a neighbor. I have a mission as part of being in the family of God. And that mission has got to be the transcendent mission over everything else. In fact, I believe if you make that your ultimate mission, you're gonna do a whole lot better at all the other missions you're called to in this life. God has one ultimate mission in this life, and that's to reconcile the world to Himself through Jesus. And you and I have a part to play in that mission being fulfilled. And these questions are challenging you to ask yourself, how is this belief changing the way that I live so I can do a better job of pointing people to his majesty, to his power, and to his kingdom? you got to ask yourself, is the way that you're living, are your attitudes and actions when you're at your job, are your attitudes and actions when you're with your family and nobody else is watching, Are those attitudes and actions inspiring other people to find their own sense of worship of the glory of God because of the goodness of God that they're finding in you? We believe these truths are supposed to lead us to that place. Glory, splendor, grandeur, power, kingdom, praise, and honor are people in this world finding God through us. The Bible is true if you're looking for a book about the bible this is the best one i've ever read it's called touchpoint by bob santos he's part of the elam network the elam fellowship this is such a great book about just the bible itself and i want to read to you an excerpt just talking about the trinity it says that orthodox christians contend the bible to be inspired fallible and authoritative i'm going to talk about those three words briefly tonight it's the inspired infallible, authoritative word of God to which all of humanity is subject. If the Bible is not inspired by God, then it's just another expression of human ideas. But if on the other hand, the Bible is the inspired written word of God, which we believe that it is, all of humanity is accountable to its teachings. Once again, Christianity rises and falls upon the inspired nature of the written word. The following three statements help lay a foundation for this important claim. The first one is this. Again, we're going to work through each of them briefly. briefly. The Bible is inspired because it is God-breathed. The Holy Spirit moved on human hearts to communicate eternal truth. The second one is this. The Bible is infallible, which means that it cannot fail us. God has spoken through his word for a variety of reasons to give wisdom, to provide direction, to correct, to rebuke, to encourage, to instill hope, to prepare us for what lies ahead. And as individuals, we may not always understand what the Bible is communicating, but the word of God will never fail to hold true in light of the purposes for which God sends it. So good. Third one is this. The Bible is authoritative because the one who inspired it is the highest authority in the universe. Consequently, we are accountable to what Scripture teaches. Spiritual truth matters, and the implications are eternal. It's good, isn't it? Touch point, Bob Santos. So good. So good. We believe that the Bible is true in the sense that it is inspired. It is inspired. In fact, when Paul was Mentoring young Timothy in one of his epistles, a letter he wrote to young Timothy, the second one in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, we find these words, all scripture is inspired by God. It's right here. And is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives, which is one of the reasons why we don't like to read it. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. We believe in the divine inspiration of this book. We believe in the sacredness of the text. The people that wrote it, we speak of them as the author, but it doesn't mean that they're the source. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, they're the source of the scripture that is given to us. We believe that it is inspired. We believe that it is infallible. Now you might say, if you're from a Baptist tradition or maybe a more Reformed tradition, this list might make you nervous because I'm not using the word inerrant. Now, I don't want you to put words in my mouth. I'm not saying that the Bible isn't inerrant. Don't post, Pastor Fred said in his way. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is, what I've grown to learn, is I'm going to leave that debate to people that are a lot smarter than me and the reason for that is at 54 and being a devoted follower of Christ for over 30 years you know what I've never heard anyone say I've never heard one person say that when Jesus found them they made a a vow of devotion to him because someone convinced them of the inerrancy of scripture now is the conversation about the inerrancy of scripture important I believe that it is is it part of orthodox Christianity I believe that it is But I like this idea of infallibility even better, because at the end of the day, what really matters is, can you trust this book to give you instruction in such a way that it will never fail you? That's, I believe, a much more important conversation. Infallible means that it's incapable of making mistakes in the sense that there's no time in history since it has been given, or if it... 10,000 years from now, Jesus has still not come back. Will we ever get to a place where there has to be a second edition because God has to correct some instruction that he's given to humanity? It's perfect in the instruction that it gives and what it requires and the boundaries that have been set. It's incapable of making mistakes and it is incapable of being wrong. I don't know if you people like to always stump the pastor with the questions and the one that used to go around a lot, not so much anymore, if, if, if God is all powerful, can he make a rock so big that he can't pick it up? Have you ever, ever heard that before? I don't, know, right? I don't know why people stumble at that question because the answer is no, he can't. Because God will never do anything that limits himself. In fact, there's a whole lot of things that God cannot do. He cannot lie. He does not steal. Right? There's all kinds of things. God, God is not envious in the sense because his pride and his ego is threatened in some way. This idea of, of, of God having limits, we, we want perfection to have limits in the sense that divinity can never fail. It can never fail. And when I think about the perfectness of God. It should not be a big leap for me to believe that he can give me a perfect sacred text. This comes out of AnswersInGenesis.org. It says, the Bible was written over a period of roughly 2,000 years by 40 different authors from three continents who wrote in three different languages. These facts alone make the Bible one of a kind. But there are many more amazing details that defy natural explanation. Shepherds, kings, scholars, fishermen, prophets, a military general, a cupbearer, and a priest all penned portions of scripture. It's incredible, isn't it? They had different immediate purposes for writing, whether recording history, giving spiritual and moral instruction, or pronouncing judgment. They composed their works from palaces, prisons, the wilderness, and places of exile while writing history while writing laws and poetry and prophecy and proverb. In the process, they laid bare their personal emotions, expressing anger, frustration, joy, and love. Yet despite this marvelous array of topics and goals, the Bible displays a flawless internal consistency. Within the pages of this book, it is infallible. Now, if you believe that it is inspired, which most people I meet believe that it is, and if you believe that it is infallible, most people I meet believe that it is. There's a reason they come in this order. Because if it is inspired, and if it is infallible, then it most certainly should be authoritative over our lives. If I can give myself to these first two, it's, it's just a natural next step. Will you let it? govern your life too many people they just look to this book for inspiration right they they say because it was inspired then it is my source of inspiration and they're confusing the meaning of those two words on which side of the bible they exist we believe that the bible is inspired and is it inspirational it is but if that's all it is it's falling short because god didn't inspire it just to be an inspiration to you He inspired it to govern us and to rule our lives. I share often about my story of being found by Christ. I was a bartender putting my college degree to work. My parents were so proud. It was in 1990, and I was attending bar one Saturday night in Shaco Slip, right there on Cary Street, Place was packed, the band was playing, everyone's having a great time, myself included, and just out of the middle of nowhere, I've never heard God's audible voice, I say that I feel it, I felt the voice of God ask me this question, I can still feel it today, do you believe that Jesus is who he says he is? Right there, now I'd grown up in a Christian home, I'd grown up around church and If there's one thing that I knew, if you start a conversation with God, you better be prepared to have that conversation for the rest of your life. He doesn't just come in, ask questions like this, and say, I'll see you in 10 years. And so I did not want to answer that question, although I knew what the answer was. I did not want to answer it because I knew more questions were going to come. And that question just tracked me down like a toddler that just learned how to walk. Could not get away. So finally I said, yeah, I do. I really do believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And I was just bracing myself for the list that he was going to bring of the debauchery of my life that needed to change. You with me? It's like when you're, you're doing a tug of war and you're just getting ready. You're, you're digging in. I was digging in. And the second thing he said to me was, well, if you believe that, don't you think you should at least take the time to read what he had to say? I was like, okay, I, I can do that. Does it mean that there wasn't a list as big as the Bible of things that needed to change in my life? Sure there were, but he didn't just want to give me a list of things that I needed to change. He wanted to introduce me to the authority that I needed to bring my life under so that I could begin to work that change out in partnership with the Holy Spirit. And so I started reading in the Gospel of John, and that began my journey And I got to John 10, 10, when Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it to the fullest possible measure, something clicked in my heart, because that's the reason why I was running from Christianity, is because I wanted life to the fullest possible measure. And I realized I had been chasing a lie. The thing that I had been chasing after was actually the thing that I was running from. I made a vow of devotion to Jesus in December of 1990 in my 1984 five-speed Honda Prelude on Laburnum Avenue, driving past skate Mall. And I said, I don't know what this means for me as a person, what I'm going to have to change. But Jesus, I'm going to live for you for the rest of my life. And that began my journey. Because not only did I believe in everything that we taught about Jesus last weekend... I also believe that the Bible was inspired, I believed that it was infallible, even though I did not have this vocabulary then, but looking back, and I also knew that it was time for it to become authoritative. That wherever my life was out of alignment with this book, it wasn't because this book had a problem. Whenever my life was out of alignment with this book, it wasn't because this book was outdated. It was because my life was broken. And some of the things, the change came easy. But many of them did not. And everything that we teach about life and community, everything that we talk about in that little booklet called Praxis about pathways, that's how my life began to change. Week after week, month after month, and year after year. I like this doctrine of the Bible is true coming immediately after God is one. As we've already said it tonight, I want to say it again. Because if we believe that God is divine, I've met very few people in my life that don't believe that. If we believe that God is divine, that he is perfect in every way, then why do we struggle with believing he is capable of giving us a sacred text that is inspired, infallible, and authoritative? So my challenge to you tonight, if you believe that the Bible is true, if you believe that it is inspired and it is infallible, then begin to have a conversation with the Holy Spirit that says, how do I need to move under it, stand on it, so that this sacred text can become authoritative and govern my life. How does my belief that the Bible is true inspire me to pursue a life that reveals God's glory to the world around me? There's teaching elements in this series, but the most important thing that's gonna come out of this series is that we wanna introduce you to a conversation with the Holy Spirit. This series is unlike any series that we've ever done before. There's teaching components, but the idea is that as we're teaching it, we're modeling for you by sharing the conversations we've had with the Holy Spirit and answering this question ourselves. Our, our goal in this series is that you're going to take this question and you're going to pray about it during the week. I'm hoping that all last week you were talking to the Holy Spirit about what does my belief about God as one inspire me. And this week, I'm hoping that you're going to wrestle with this question and that you're going to find the Holy Spirit is going to speak to you because he's present and he wants to have conversations like this with us. So each week I'm sharing you what I feel like God speaks to me through my conversation. And as I was thinking about what... God spoke to me. I'm going to share with you in just a minute. I thought about Proverbs 1, 20 to 23. It says, wisdom shouts in the streets. She cries out in the public square. She calls to the crowds along the main street, to those gathered in front of the city gate. How long, you simpletons, will you insist on being simple-minded? I can relate to that verse. How long will you mockers relish your mocking? How long will you fools hate knowledge? Come and listen to my counsel. I'll share my heart with you and make you wise. It's one of the texts that Amy shot out just talking about the, the Holy Spirit is, 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 is spoken of here as wisdom in Proverbs and I agree with that. And as, and as I was praying about this question for myself, I just kept feeling the Holy Spirit's tug to that text and as I kept reading it and praying about it this is what I felt like the Holy Spirit was saying to me as I was asking the question how does my belief that the Bible is true inspire me to pursue a life that reveal, reveals God's glory to the world around me this is what I felt like God spoke to me I want my life to be an echo of the wisdom of scripture to the world I want my life to be an echo of the wisdom of scripture to the world I want that to be a hallmark of my life. I'm not saying this should be your answer. I'm saying you got to find your answer. Does that make sense? This series is about challenging you to leave this place and begin to have a conversation and trust that the Holy Spirit's going to give you something. My hope at the end of this series, you're going to have seven life statements, seven life statements and questions that accompany them, which I'm going to get to in just a minute. I think this word echo is important because, see, an echo does not have a say in what it repeats. I want my life to be an echo of this book. If you've ever stood in a place where you can generate an echo, you know that it was not altered in any way when it comes back to you. If you've ever stood in a place like the Grand Canyon and said, hello, hello. And then you wait, it does not come back and say, No one's ever done that before, 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 before. Right? When you, when you stand up there and shout your name, Fred, it doesn't come back, George, George, George. But how many of us, us live our lives that way? With the truth in this book, how, how many of us, through our attitudes, through our actions, through our value system, through our choices, through the life that we are living? Are we an echo of the wisdom of God that he wants to reverberate in this world through the people that he's created us to become? Or are we altering it, changing it, generating our own voice in society that is in conflict with the wisdom of Scripture? I want my life. If I believe that the Bible is true, I want it to be an echo that's echoed through me in the world that is around me. I don't want people to be confused about Christianity and the truth of Scripture because of the example of my life that they've observed through all the missions that I'm doing through my life roles. So I want to spend a little bit of time tonight talking to you about the story of Jacob and Leah and Rachel, and Laban. Because with each one of these statements that are accompanied by this question, I believe that God wants to ask us some questions, practically, that are going to cause reflection in us for how we're supposed to live out the statement that he gives to us, right? Seven life statements, they should be accompanied by some questions, I share this story tonight because I believe it's a powerful historical account of how godly people make choices and decisions that are continually in stark contrast to the character of God they worship as revealed in scripture. And I hope when you read stories like this, you're asking questions of yourself like I'm asking of myself, is this me? Where am I doing this myself? Is my life an echo? of God's wisdom as revealed in Scripture, or does it stand in contrast to it? Now I'm going to read this. If you're watching from home and you've got elementary school students in the room with you, this is a PG-13 story, and I intend to make some PG-13 commentary. So just giving you fair warning. If you've got middle school and up, I would say don't let them leave the room because they need to hear the things that I'm going to say. And if it makes you uncomfortable as a parent, then start being more uncomfortable with your children in your conversation about sexuality. Genesis 29, 14. Second part of verse 14, after Jacob had stayed with Laban for about a month, Laban said to him, you shouldn't work for me without pay, just because we are relatives, tell me how much your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The older daughter was named Leah. The younger one was Rachel. There was no sparkle in Leah's eyes, but Rachel had a beautiful figure and a lovely face. Now I want to, this is my first pause. This is not teaching us about a kingdom of God value system. These comments are given here because God is trying to expose the brokenness of human desire. This isn't here because God's elevating one over the other. It's here because he's giving commentary about how we as human beings, body shame, and how also we elevate external beauty over inner beauty. And God's putting this in here to say, don't do this. And where you see the story headed is a reminder of why that's true Since Jacob was in love with Rachel, he told her father, I'll work for seven years. If you'll give me Rachel, I would have worked for 14, honey, 14. See what I did there? I know. I know. It's a points-based system, people. And they reset. You've heard me say this. Our points reset every 24 hours. Their points amass over time and accumulate interest. If you don't like how that works, you can take it up to God when you get to heaven. Just scored a lot of points. Agreed, Laban replied. This is what you hope every father-in-law says to you. I'd rather give her to you than someone else. Great. Great. Stay and work for me. So Jacob worked seven years to pay for Rachel But his love for her was so strong that it seemed to him but a few days. I know. See, there's some romance here. Finally, the time came. Now, this is where the romance disappears. Finally, the time came for him to marry her. He said, "I have fulfilled my agreement." And Jacob said to Laban, "Laban, now give me my wife so I can sleep with her." Great. It's what every bride's hoping the primary motivation of her groom to be is. But we should not be surprised that this is the sentiment because of why he was drawn to her. I'm not saying that there wasn't a love that developed over time. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying, is it's, there's a reason why God puts both of these things in here. See, this, I'm, I'm talking to young people and teenagers just for a minute. Sex is not something, it's someone. And until you grasp that, you're never gonna truly understand the sexuality that God has given to you. Sex is not something, it's someone. And as long as you think of sex as something, you will always be looking for someone so you can do the something. And then the person that you're supposed to cherish becomes the means to an end when they were supposed to be the end of itself. Which is why he says, now give me my wife so I can sleep with her because sex to him is something when it's supposed to be someone. Someone. When you think about sex as someone, then you realize that the something is the gift that is shared between the someones. And then you begin to experience and discover the beauty of God's creation with our sexuality as long as it's within the boundaries of this book. So Laban invited everyone in the neighborhood and prepared a wedding feast But that night when it was dark, Laban took Leah to Jacob, not Rachel. Laban took Leah to Jacob, and he slept with her. Laban had given Leah a servant named Zilpah to be her maid. That comes into focus later in the story. But when Jacob woke up in the morning, surprise, it was Leah. What have you done To me, Jacob raged at Laban, raged at Laban. I work seven years for Rachel. Why have you tricked me? Verse 26, it's not our custom here to marry off a younger daughter ahead of the firstborn, Laban replied, but wait until the bridal week is over. Then we'll give you Rachel too, provided you promise to work another seven years. So Jacob agreed to work seven more years. And a week after Jacob had married Leah, Laban gave him Rachel too. And Laban gave Rachel a servant, Bilhah, to be her maid Again, all of that plays out in the story as you keep reading. So Jacob slept with Rachel too. And he loved her much more than Leah. And then he stayed and worked for Laban the additional seven years. What an incredible story of brokenness, of dysfunctionality, of deceit. It's not, right, we, we don't even have time to go into this idea that how women were, they were property. You realize what's happening here, right? Property. This is not God's value system. This is God exposing the brokenness of the human value system. Now, I'm going to push pause on my sermon just for a minute, because I have something I I want to say to married couples. As I was writing this and praying over this sermon, I had such a sense that this was just supposed to be a moment for some people. So if you're watching from home, I want to invite you to, to do this same thing. There's going to be a moment where I'm going to invite some of you to stand, now, if you've been a part of our church for any amount of time, you know that sometimes standing is a response that we ask people to make. I know that you can feel conspicuous in those moments. But there's, there's something about being conspicuous. There's something, something about the woman with the issue of blood pressing through the crowd and reaching for the garment of Christ. She did not care if she was seen. There was something about Peter being the only one that would step over the side of the boat. Sometimes God asks us to take a a step of faith. And in this case, I believe it's taking a stand of faith. If you're watching from home and your kids ask, why did you stand? You don't have to explain them. You can just say, we just felt like God wanted us to stand in this moment. It's okay. It's okay for there to be privacy in your marriage apart from your children. But I believe this picture of Leah, when Jacob realized who it was, is such a powerful prophetic image of disappointment that we experience in marriage in one another. See, you and I, all of us, are both Leah and Rachel. Parts of us that are going to disappoint our spouses, and parts of us that our spouses can't wait to discover. And what happens so many times in marriages is when there is an unveiling and there's a a Leo moment, someone walks away because of the disappointment. And what I'm saying to you is you've got to wait for the Rachel that is coming, you've got to be willing in your disappointment. And oftentimes, which is I love about the prophetic imagery of this story, you have a reason to be disappointed. Sometimes it is because of betrayal. Sometimes it is because of mistreatment. What I'm saying to you is what I felt like God wanted you to hear is, wait for the Rachel that is coming. Wait for the Rachel that is coming. If you're disappointed with your spouse and they don't know it, do not stand up, (laughs) you with me, it means that you should have a conversation with them tonight after the kids go to bed, do not keep hiding your disappointment, you got to put it out there, you got to put it out there, this is recorded on YouTube and all of our online, then you can rewind it and stand up, the prayer still works, (laughs) that's great, isn't it, oh, it's so good, So if you're a couple that's wrestling with disappointment and you both know that you're in a season of disappointment, I'm going to invite you to stand right where you are. I'm just going to pray for you. We're not going to linger in this moment. I'm not going to ask you to come forward. I'm just going to invite you to stand where you are and just want to pray. Father, I pray for every married couple that's standing up right now. Every married couple in Jesus' name. Whether they're standing up in this room or standing up in their room at their house whether they're standing up and it's months from now or years from now when they're watching this, we pray over these couples right now. And, and we say yes and amen to the Rachel that is coming. Father, we know that there are parts of all of us that are in disappointment. We know that there are parts of all of us that can hurt and harm, And we know that those that are standing right now, that they've been victims of that in some way. But I pray, I pray that right now you're going to deposit a supernatural gift of waiting in them. That you're going to deposit in them a supernatural patience. Not denial, because Leah is real. But you're going to deposit in them that their feet are going to dig in. And they're going to wait for the Rachel that is coming. The Rachel that is coming. The part of their spouse that you're working on, that you're transforming, that you're changing, that you're building, that you're shaping. We pray that disappointment right now in Jesus' name would lose its sense of power and control over these households. In Jesus' name. And everybody said together, Amen. Amen. All right, back to your regularly scheduled programming. We're in the home stretch. I just I'm just going to give you the three questions. We're not going to teach on them, not going to talk about them at length, I just want to share them with you. This is part of my own journey of vulnerability this year. I think I'm gonna have lots of questions in response to the one statement I give and then my goal for myself personally is I'm gonna narrow down. I shared with you three questions that I'm asking myself last week. I'm gonna narrow that down to one. I wanna get down to to seven core statements and seven key questions. I'm gonna write those down and those things are gonna guide me this year. Again, I'm not teaching you these because I want you to have these same answers. I'm saying have your conversation with the Holy Spirit. If for me, if I want to live my life to be an echo of the wisdom of Scripture to the world around me, these are three questions that I believe that the Holy Spirit gave to me. When the norms of culture conflict with the standards of God's character, which am I choosing? God worked in me through this story. He might take you to a different story in the Bible that you're familiar with. He might take you to a series of different verses. He might not take you to any stories. He might just give you some questions. It might just be one. It might be more than three. But I find it interesting, this was Laban's excuse. Laban's excuse for being deceptive was a cultural norm. So for my own life, I'm asking, when the norms of culture conflict with the stanzas of God's character, which am I choosing? Second one is this. When those in power victimize the marginalized and innocent, will I protest? These are my questions. I'm not saying these questions should be yours. When those in power victimize the marginalized and innocent, will I protest? When all of this played out, everyone else in Laban's family and their community were painfully silent. Where was the voice of the person that stood up and said, this is not right? And the last one is this, what veils am I wearing Because I'm afraid of disappointing others. What veils am I wearing? Because I'm afraid of disappointing others. Can you imagine Leah's journey in life? Can you imagine a daughter hearing her father come to her and say, no one's ever going to want you. And the only way you're ever going to have a husband is to participate in this betrayal. And come into marriage under the guise of your sister's beauty. What kind of father says that to his daughter? I was reading again this week. I'm like, yeah, I might get a time out as soon as I get to heaven. Because I might find Laban and just punch him right in the nose. What kind of father were you? they do something like this. It's terrible. I think sometimes we read these stories in the Bible so often we, we, we forget. These are real people. And real stories that did real things, that really hurt people deeply. What veils am I wearing because I'm afraid of disappointing others? See, Leah went along with this plan because she was so afraid of just being a disappointment to everybody And if you continue to read the story, what's so terribly tragic about her life is that she lived under a veil of disappointment for the rest of her days. See, a lot of times people have said hurtful things to us throughout our lives that cause us to lose our sense of hope in ourselves people that were supposed to be there for us, parents that were supposed to say things to inspire us that remained silent, the wounds that all of us collectively have in this room because of the failures of our mothers and our fathers at various times. Come on. Jesus is your healer. He's not gonna go back and rewrite your history, but he wants to heal your heart so he can write a new story for your tomorrows. And I know for me personally, I've got to stop wearing veils because of fear of disappointing people. How does my belief that the Bible is true, I'm going to invite the band to come up, inspire me to pursue a life that reveals God's glory to the world around me? How does my belief that the Bible is true? inspire me to pursue a life that reveals God's glory to the world around me. We're going to step into a moment of worship together. At the end of that, I'll come back up and close and then we'll have some people here at the front like we're doing every week to pray over you if you want prayer. If you're one of the married couples that stood up, feel free to come for prayer at the end. My great hope in this series it's not that you're going to learn something from a message that teaches. Is that you're going to experience something for the rest of your life because you were inspired to step into a depth of intimacy and relationship with the Holy Spirit like you've never had before. That you're going to pick up a conversation with Him. Stand with me. That you're going to pick up a conversation with Him that's never going to stop. And that these truths that are sacred, these tenets of faith that are so important to us, that he's going to use them to give you something to talk about. And in your conversation, he's going to help you begin to see things in your life that he wants to show you. Father, as we step into this moment of worship, I pray that even now, people would have a sense of having a conversation with you. Have a sense of, having a conversation with the Son, having a sense of having a conversation with the Holy Spirit. I pray that this this moment of of worship, that they would be awakened to the reality of your presence, that we would be under an open heaven, that that veil that separates the temporal from the eternal, just, just peel it back for this moment, that we might stand with you that we might hear your voice. You might speak to our hearts. In Christ's name, come on, let's worship together.